Last night, I asked that you consider the question, why do you practice? Tonight, I'd like to suggest a response. (laughs) The response has to do with the development certain qualities, certain factors of mind. which deepen the capacity for understanding and lead to the possibility of liberation and freedom. These factors or qualities of mind are called in the teachings of the Buddha the seven factors of enlightenment. What we're doing as we practice through each sitting, through each walking, to each activity, what we're doing is developing and cultivating and strengthening these seven factors. What are they? What is it that we're actually cultivating in our practice? The first of them, the lead one, is the factor of mindfulness. Mindfulness means careful noticing of each moment's experience. In the Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology, a distinction is made between mindfulness and attention. They're two different factors. Attention is a common factor, which means it arises in every moment of consciousness. And it's that superficial quality of directing the mind to the surface of the experience, just enough so that, so that consciousness of it is possible. This attention is not mindfulness. Mindfulness has the quality of a penetrating awareness, an awareness that's not just superficially touching the experience or the object, but has a power behind it, the power to penetrate into whatever the object or experience is. It has to do with a closeness of attention bringing the mind very close to the place of contact. In some ways, it's unfortunate that the English translation of the Pali word sati is mindfulness. Because mindfulness in English, it's not such a strong word. it It doesn't have a particular strength or pizzazz. And yet the quality of mind, which the word mindfulness or sati in Pali describes, has tremendous power and tremendous strength. So it's important to get in touch with the quality that we talk about, that's meant when we use the word mindfulness. 
mindfulness, fullness of mind. In the Buddha's elaboration of the path of practice leading to liberation, and liberation in this sense means freedom from defilement, freedom from greed, freedom from hatred, freedom from delusion or ignorance. In his teachings, the path leading to liberation, there's one central sutta or discourse which lays out in a very systematic way the entire path of practice. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. In this discourse, he elaborates what this factor of enlightenment means, how to practice it. What are the four foundations of mindfulness, the four fields of awareness? The first is mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of bodily sensations, mindfulness of movement, mindfulness of the different sense objects, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. The body is a wonderful object of meditation because it's very tangible. It's possible to get very grounded in our awareness when we take the body as the object of mindfulness. You've probably noticed how much of the time our energy is kind of up and out of our heads. It's it's as if there's this cloud of image and thought and concept. And often it feels very disconnected from the groundedness that's possible. Mindfulness of the body, of the simplest things, of the feeling of touch, of contact when we're sitting, the feeling of the ground under our feet, the feeling of touch when we hold a cup, the sensation of the air on our skin as we walk outside, the very simplest aspect of our experience has a tremendous power to ground the awareness in the present moment. So, it's helpful to keep in mind how effective and powerful a tool of practice it is when we're paying attention to the simple bodily experience. It's the first of the four foundations. The second foundation of awareness or mindfulness is one that plays a critical role in understanding in understanding the law of our conditioning. And this is mindfulness of feelings. Feelings in this sense do not mean emotions. Rather, in this sense of the Buddhist psychology, feeling means the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, 
that arises in every moment of experience. In every moment of seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or sensing in the body or thinking or imaging, in every single moment of our experience throughout our lives, there's a quality of feeling to it. It's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Why is this so critical? It's so essential because it's this quality of feeling which conditions grasping or attachment, conditions resistance or aversion, conditions forgetfulness. When there's an experience that's accompanied by pleasant feeling, when we're not mindful, when we're not paying attention, the pleasantness of the experience conditions us to hold on. We like it, and so we grasp, we cling. When an experience arises that's accompanied with an unpleasant feeling, and we're not mindful, the mind is conditioned to resist, to push away, to dislike, to condemn. When experience arises with a neutral feeling, and we're not mindful, the mind is conditioned to forget, to become forgetful. Greed, hatred, and delusion. The three unwholesome roots of mind are conditioned by this mental factor of feeling, which arises in every moment of our experience. So becoming mindful of of these feelings is absolutely necessary and essential if we want to start deconditioning those habituated responses. So, for example, there's an experience and it's very pleasant. Fine, there's no problem with the pleasantness. If we're mindful, pleasant feeling, pleasant feeling, the mindfulness then cuts off the grasping. We simply are aware of the pleasant feeling without clinging to it. Comes, it goes, there's no defilement there. Unpleasant feeling arises. You're sitting and there's this terrible pain in your knee. Bodily sensation associated with the factor of unpleasant feeling. If we're not mindful of the unpleasantness, so we push at it, or we condemn it, or we judge it, or we have ill will or aversion, If we are mindful of it, there's the open experience of that bodily sensation with the accompanying unpleasantness, there's no problem. The mind stays balanced and open. That feeling comes and goes. No defilement in the mind then. Neutral feeling is a little harder to become aware of because it's neutral. And the image that's used is that of tracking an animal's footprints in the soil, in the ground, and it goes over a rock and then continues. You don't really see the footprints over the rock, but we can infer that it's gone over the rock from the footprints before it and afterward. Neutral Neutral feeling is likened to those footprints on the rock. 
difficult to say. But we can infer it when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Do you see the possibility of the freedom in the mind when we become aware of this quality of pleasantness and unpleasantness? Instead of those feelings driving us unconsciously and unmindfully, driving us to grab onto or cling to or be attached if it's pleasant, or judge or fear or feel aversion if it's unpleasant, the possibility of the freedom when we're simply mindful of this second foundation of awareness, mindfulness of feelings. So in your practice, as you go through the day, in the beginning you might be aware of feelings after you already notice the reaction. In other words, we might, we might have to backtrack in the beginning we find ourselves clinging or we find ourselves condemning, notice that and then work back to the feeling that's behind it. You will find that behind the condemning is something unpleasant. Behind the clinging is something pleasant. So it's important to actually work with the mind in this way so we develop this understanding and we begin to decondition these defilements of mind through the power of mindfulness. It's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings. The third foundation of mindfulness is the awareness of the mind and its concomitant mental states. That is, aware of consciousness as it arises, as it's colored by anger, by love, by happiness, by sadness, by lust, by renunciation. The mind and its, and its mental states, the mind and its qualities. Again, it becomes so important that we pay attention to the arising of the mind with its different colors, its different factors, because if we're not then it's as if we view our experience through the filter of those mind states. Have you noticed that you can be in the most beautiful surrounding and if you're feeling depressed, you're going to view those surroundings through the filter of that grayness. And if you're happy and elated, you can be in the most awful surroundings and it's like everything is shimmering with light. To be mindful of the mind and its mental concomitants allows us to be open and receptive and inquiring of the quality of those mind states without them being an unconscious filter on our experience. So when we're happy, we're aware that happiness is there as an impersonal factor of mind. It is not I and not self and not mine. comes and it goes. Sadness, openness, closeness, whatever whatever the mind state may be. As you go through the day in your practice, the day and night, 
pay attention to the strong mind states which arise. It's interesting to watch how the mind backs into a corner from which it observes experience. It can be the corner of a commentator. You know, that that little voice in the back of the mind that's continual, continually commenting on how things are going. Oh, it's going well. It's not going so well. I wish this were the ninth day. I wish it would last forever. Whatever. That's one of the corners that the mind backs itself into from which it observes what's going on. Another corner, or not only one corner, many corners that it backs into, which often we don't become aware of, is the corner of our mental attitudes towards experience. That is, these mental states or emotions that arise, we become identified with them and then view our experience through that perspective. Instead of seeing that those mind states or emotions are just another part of the passing show. Becoming mindful of the mind and mental states again disentangles us from that, from that identified involvement. Mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of the mind and mental states The last of the four foundations of mindfulness is hard to translate into English. It's called mindfulness of the Dhamma. You may hear in the course of these talks that word pronounced two different different ways. In Pali, it's pronounced Dhamma, and in Sanskrit, it's Dharma. We use it interchangeably. Mindfulness of the Dhamma. Dhamma means law. It means the way of things, how things are happening, reality. So mindfulness of the law in this sense means seeing how different factors of mind function. As an example, when we become aware of the hindrances in the mind, that is, of desire or anger or sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, to see them just as mind states is really the the third foundation of awareness, mindfulness of the mind. But when we see that those mind states function as hindrances, then it becomes part of this fourth foundation of awareness. We see how things are functioning, how they're working. Becoming mindful of the seven factors of enlightenment, which will be enumerating tonight, is mindfulness of the Dhamma. Mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths, of suffering, what the cause of suffering is, which is attachment, the end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. As we become aware of that, it's also mindfulness of the Dhamma. Do you have a sense of how complete this exposition of mindfulness is? In these four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha laid out a system for paying attention 
to the totality of our experience. Highlighting those aspects which go directly to the knots of our conditioning and the possibility of untying those knots through the power of this mindfulness of close attention. It's the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Remember that it's not a superficial attention. It's the quality of the mind that goes deep into the experience. Just as an example, How attentively can you listen to the sound? On the surface, hearing a bell and more or less present for it. Mindfulness is that penetrating attention in which we're with the momentary vibration of the sound. It's that kind of caring that kind of closeness that's described in this first limb or first factor of enlightenment. The second factor of enlightenment is investigation of the Dhamma, investigation of the truth. And that has to do with the factor of wisdom. Investigation is an active active quality of mind. It's not the quality of mind that's just settled back, but rather investigation has to do with being settled back into the moment and then looking very carefully or feeling very carefully exactly what it is that's going on. As an example of ways of developing investigation, Have you ever looked to see why it is that you move? Why move? Come in here to sit. Why get up? It's said that the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, he sat down under the Bodhi tree with such determination that he resolved he was not going to get up from his seat until he had attained to full realization. Could we do that? Could we make that level of commitment? Not easy. Why? Take a look, investigate, and see why it is that you move. Whether it's going from sitting to standing, from standing to walking, slight movements, slight adjustments, you'll discover some interesting things about the nature of this process. In addition to discovering one of the root motives for action, you will also discover the connection between the mind and body. The body by itself doesn't move. Have you ever seen a corpse get up and walk away? Probably not. There's no mind, there's no consciousness in a corpse. The body by itself doesn't go anyplace. It's activated 
by the mind, by consciousness. And we can observe the relationship between the mind and body when we pay very careful attention to intention in the mind. The body moves because of an an intention to move. There's a mind impulse, a mind decision, not necessarily in words. There's that moment before movement in which the commitment to move is made. If we move slowly enough, if we're going slowly enough, we'll be able to experience this intention in the mind before the movement actually happens. Begin to see the cause and effect relationship between the mind and the body. You know, the path of, the path of practice and this, this factor of investigation in particular is just a wonderful, it's like going into the mind with surgical skill. To have that quality of mind that's looking so precisely and so carefully how this whole system is made up, how it works. Find out why you move. Pay attention to the cause and effect. Another aspect of investigation is to see very clearly the specific characteristics of each moment's experience. As an example, we're sitting and following the breath, rising, falling, or in and out. Rising, falling, and in and out are cover words. They're abstractions referring to a much more specific quality of experience. What are the actual sensations in each rising movement? What are the specific sensations that you feel in the falling? Or in movement? You know, we take a step. Lifting, moving, placing, stepping, left, right, are all abstractions which are helpful in guiding the mind to the experience. But this quality of investigation doesn't settle for that. It goes right into the experience of movement and discovers exactly the specific sensations involved in each movement. That's the quality of this factor of enlightenment, investigation. Find out why you move. See the connection between intention in the mind and movement. Pay careful attention to the specific qualities or characteristics of each experience, of each in-breath, each out-breath, rising, falling, each step. There's another aspect to investigation, which is the gateway to a whole domain of understanding that's extremely subtle and rare. 
And that is the investigation in each moment into the process or into the discriminating awareness of knowing an object. For example, in every moment of our experience, there's one of six objects happening. There's either sight or sound or smell or taste or bodily sensations or mind objects. And I don't think anybody experiences anything outside of those six. Our experience comes down to one of those six objects arising and passing in each moment and the knowing of them. There's sight and the knowing of sight, sound and the knowing of sound, sensation and the knowing of sensation. When we understand and see that this process which we call I or which we call self is merely a sequence of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. There's no one behind it. It's an impersonal process arising and passing in each moment. What we are, what life is, moments of experience of one of the six objects mind included is the sixth sense, and the knowing of them. So pay attention to that, because when that insight is explored, we enter the domain of understanding of emptiness of self, selflessness. And a whole, a whole un- understanding begins to unfold from that. How to work with it specifically? It can begin in, in simple ways. When you with the breath, Be aware of the rising or the sensations involved in that. Be aware that there are two things happening. There's the rising sensations and the knowing of them. The falling and the knowing of the falling. You hear a sound, be aware of the hearing and the knowing of the hearing.
stay soft with this investigation because if you think too much about it, you'll go a little nuts. It's not to think about it. It's merely to pay careful attention in each moment to how the experience is, to what it is that's happening. And in that careful attention, you will see that there's the object and the knowing of the object comes and goes. New object, new moment of knowing that object. This pairwise progression. Okay, investigation of the Dhamma. These are ways of cultivating this factor. One reminder with respect to understanding this, investigation of the Dhamma does not mean particularly thinking about things. It's not that kind of investigation. It's not discursive. It's the investigation referring to a quality of looking. It's a quality of our attention which probes into the experience. It's as if we're asking the question, what's happening? What's happening on the deepest, most subtle, most refined levels? How do we find out what's happening? By looking very, very carefully. Okay, mindfulness is the first factor of enlightenment, investigation of the Dhamma. The third factor of enlightenment is energy or effort. And it's said to be the support or the foundation of all the others. Because without effort and without energy, nothing happens. We just play out our old habits of conditioning. One of the most inspiring aspects of the teachings of the Buddha is the fact that he plays total responsibility on each being, each person, to work out their own understanding, their own liberation. It's said that Buddhas only point out the way and everybody has to actually do the work themselves. Who put the defilements into our minds? Did somebody place them there? That we can ask them to take them out? Nobody is going to come along and, and zap you on the forehead and greed, hatred, and delusion will be absent. We have, to, we have to do the work of exploring and understanding ourselves. But there's tremendous strength which comes from that because then we begin to take responsibility for our own minds, our own beings. There's one aspect of energy or effort which often is missed and it's in some way the key to developing it. And that is the understanding that energy comes from doing. You don't have to have it beforehand in order to do. The very doing is what creates the energy. And I'm sure in very simple ways you've noticed that throughout your life. You can be feeling tired and dragged out, whatever, and you go out and jog or you play tennis and all of a sudden you feel all this energy. If you waited for the energy to come before you went out and did those things, (laughs) it's exactly the same way in practice. Just to share one story with you. 
in the early days of my sitting career, I was doing some courses in India, and we'd wake up at 4 o'clock for a two-hour sitting before breakfast, 4.30 to 6.30. At that time, it was, it was very difficult for me to sit cross-legged. A lot of pain, and it was just, it was hard. So I got up real early and raced into the meditation hall so I could get some wall space. My wall space was at a premium. Anyway, I got in, I got my place, sat down, began to practice. Ten minutes into the sitting, I'd kind of be leaning against the wall. Ten minutes later, asleep. (laughs) The two hours went very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Next morning, same thing. I was I was inspired to make the effort, you know, and I'd get up and I'd go into the hall, lean against the wall, and fast asleep. This went on for, I don't know, it went on for a week or ten days. And in that time, I started thinking, why am I doing this? You know, I might as well sleep and get enough rest and wake up and really do the practice. As long as I'm doing it, I would be there for it and be awake. But I didn't believe that voice in my mind. And I just kept on going. Until one morning, I went into the hall and I sat down and I was totally awake for the two hours. If I hadn't put in the effort to just keep doing it, even though it felt like nothing was happening and I was even wasting my time, the effort was building, the energy was building. And it builds to a certain point and and you see the fruit very clearly. There's no effort which is wasted, no effort to be present to be mindful, to be attentive, to investigate, no effort is lost. And even if you don't see the consequence or the result just then, the force of that factor of mind is getting stronger. Effort is such an interesting factor because it's so delicate. You have to pay attention to the balance of it. And you can lose balance two ways. You can either get very lax and not make enough effort, just kind of drift through the retreat, drift through one's life, not much happening. Or you can make too much effort, or effort in a wrong way. And then you get very tight and very tense and very restless, and that's not correct either. It has to be a refined balance where there's an effort and an energy and a real determination and resolution with softness, with a sense of relaxation. There's a Tibetan phrase, it's from the teachings of Milarepa, which characterizes just that fine line of right effort. He says that yogis should hasten slowly. That's the, that's the dynamic. The forward edge of effort without forcing. Because if it's forcing, it just is counterproductive. If you're not at the forward edge, kind of, it's too lax. Play with that for yourselves. Now, this time of the retreat, 
it's such a precious time because what you've given to yourselves is the space to explore the limits and boundaries of your being. It's like you walk into a space and it's a very protected environment and all that you have to do is pay attention to what it is that's going on. It's very rare and it's clear that you all know that it's rare to have a space that's so undistracted. Use it. Work with this fact of enlightenment, of right effort, of energy. Push yourself a little bit. Hasten slowly. Don't be afraid to really extend the limits. Mindfulness, investigation of the Dhamma, energy or effort. The fourth factor of enlightenment is rapture. And rapture means joyous interest. That interest or fascination in the nature of the mind, in the nature of the body. What actually is going on in our lives? What is our life about? What is experience about? The, the simile used to describe this quality of rapture is that of a person who has been walking in the desert for days. You know, it's just hot and tired and thirsty. And then in the distance, she or he sees, you know, a lake of clear, cool water. How would your mind feel when you saw that water? That's rapture. Just that intense interest and joy. It can be developed in every moment of our experience and it's one of the factors of enlightenment. It's actually what we're cultivating in the practice. It's born out of close attention. What's the opposite of rapture? The opposite of rapture is boredom or disinterest. Fritz Perls, with his usual perspective, had a very good understanding of boredom. He said that boredom is lack of attention. It has nothing to do with the experience. We think that certain activities are inherently interesting or boredom or boring. It's not in the activity. It's in the quality of our mind. And when there's a quality of close attention, you find the most simple things totally interesting. Which is why when the mindfulness is strongly developed, people sit for hours watching rising, falling, or in and out. What could be more boring? (laughs) And it's not boring at all. It's each moment is just this, this world of experience presenting itself to us. If you're feeling bored in the practice, that is a helpful signal. Take it as a feedback or a signal that the attention at that time is half-hearted. And so what's needed is to rouse a closer attention, a closer investigation. And as soon as the mind does that, you see that the boredom disappears 
and that factor of interest or rapture begins to arise. At the centers in Burma, there's strong encouragement for people to practice very hard, especially in the first week or so, in order to develop the concentration and mindfulness sufficient to taste this quality of rapture. Because once the interest is developed, there's a momentum to practice, there's a strong motivating desire to continue because it's so interesting. It's to understand that it's one of the factors of enlightenment, it's one of the qualities of mind that is developed in our practice. This quality of delighted interest in what's going on. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, Calm is the fifth, fifth factor of enlightenment. Calm is the quality of peacefulness, of non-agitation, of coolness, of rest. And there may be times in the day when the mind is just even, it's on the breath, easily, or it's on the walking. And it's not a lot of excitement, and it may not even be a lot of interest, but it's just steady. It's not being driven by desire, not being driven by anger. That's the development of calm. As a way of getting a sense of what calm means, there's a very interesting exercise to do, and it, it brings in all the other factors of enlightenment as well. The next time the mind is filled either with desire or anger, but even more with desire, because the contrast will be very interesting for you, pay careful attention to the quality of the experience when the desire is present, whatever, whether it's lust, you know, sexual desire, or desire for food, any kind. Pay attention to the quality of the experience and then notice just the transition point, however long it takes, there'll be some point when the desire passes away. Notice the difference in your experience when the mind is filled with desire and when it goes away. And if you can catch just the point of transition, the contrast will be very clear to you. And you will have a clear understanding of what calm means. Because when the mind is filled with desire, even when we're caught up in the pleasure of it, you will see that when the mind lets go of the desire, it's a sense of relief. There's that tangible sense settling back. You know, you breathe a sigh of relief that the mind has let go of that reaching or wanting. Be aware of that, and you'll get a sense of the factor of calm in the mind. Calm means the mind that's free of desire, free of agitation, free of ill will, peaceful. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration. 
steadiness of mind. You've seen, I think, that it takes some practice. Our minds, for the most part, are not very concentrated, very scattered. We get lost in thought, we get lost in daydream, lost in past, lost in future. We don't know what's going on. Concentration is that ability to stay steady on an object. And so when it's well-trained, we tell the mind, stay here. It stays. Stay there. It stays. This power of concentration is a power. That's the strength of mind. That's what, that's what gives the mind the power to penetrate deeply. The stillness and steadiness. And accompanying it is a sense of tremendous well-being and wholeness. Because it's a unifying factor. Now, we work with two different kinds of concentration. One is a directed awareness to a particular object, whether it's the breath or a sensation or a sound. We train the mind to stay on it. Another way of developing concentration, which we also use, it's called momentary concentration. That is steadiness of mind on changing objects. And so in each moment of seeing, of hearing, of sensing, of thinking, If we're steady on that, this factor of concentration is deepening. There are two things which will help you to develop concentration quickly. And the stronger the concentration, the more effortless the practice becomes. So it's worth applying you know, effort to the development of it. Two little tricks. One is continuity. Pay attention, be concentrated on the small things that you do, not just sitting and walking. All the little details of what's going on. So you're putting your shoes on, you're taking a shower, you're going to the bathroom, you're going for food, you're standing up, you're sitting down, you're opening a door, whatever. Don't neglect anything. All experience is equally valuable. There's nothing more holy about sitting in the meditation hall than sitting on the toilet. There isn't. It's just life experience unfolding. That deserves as much attention as this. fill in the gaps. That very much hastens the cultivation of this factor. The other thing that you can watch out for, which I found very useful, one of the biggest distractions to continuity of concentration is visual visual distraction, our mind going out through our eyes. And it happens so easily, and happens so often, even within one period of walking, how many times do you kind of glance up and, you know, do you hear a sound? Mm, what's that? Or see something out of the corner of the eye? And each time, it's like the power of that continuity is lost. 
Guard the eye door. There are two ways of guarding it. One by restraining it and really really not allowing the attention to keep going out through the eyes. The other way is to be extremely mindful every time you see. So, for example, if you're doing the walking practice and you hear a sound, note the hearing. If you want to turn to see what it is, note the intention to turn. Note the turning. Note the seeing. Note the intention to turn back, the turning. If you can do it that way, seeing will not be a distraction. If you can't do it that way, guard the sense door. You'll find that it's extremely helpful. It focuses the mind very quickly. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration. The last of the seven factors of enlightenment is equanimity. And it's this wonderful balancing factor. It's the factor of openness of mind, impartiality. It's, it's a willingness to be with every moment of experience equally. It's not picking, it's not choosing, it's not discriminating. It's just a willingness to be with and explore and investigate whatever presents itself. Can you go from a painful feeling to a blissful feeling without preference? Not so easy. And yet when there's equanimity, the happiness of the equanimity, the peacefulness, the joy of that openness and stability is far greater than the happiness of always reaching or going for the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. One story which many of you have heard, but it so illustrates the quality of equanimity that I'd like to tell it again. It's the story of a time in Korea when there was a rebel general who was very fierce and very violent going around the countryside killing everybody. And so everybody fled. All the people fled from his path except one old Zen master. Even all the monks fled except for the Zen master. And the general heard about this and was infuriated that somebody was not running away from him. So he goes charging up to the temple and he's brandishing his sword and he screams at the Zen master, don't you know that you're looking at one who can run you through without batting an eye? And the Zen master looks back at him and says, And you, sir, are looking at one who can be run through without batting an eye. It said the general bowed and left. That's equanimity. But you can see the freedom, the fearlessness that comes from that 
from that quality. A willingness to accept all, to be with all, to investigate all. So this is what we're doing in our practice. We're developing these seven factors. You see that three of them are arousing factors. Investigation, energy, and rapture. They arouse the system. Three are tranquilizing ones. Calm, concentration, and equanimity. When they're in perfect balance, and it's mindfulness which brings them into that balance, it's out of that perfect balance, yin and yang, active and, active and receptive. Out of that perfect balance comes the possibility of opening to the unconditioned, to nibbana, to freedom. One last comment about these seven limbs of enlightenment. It's helpful through the day, and it's included in one of the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the Dhamma. As you go through the day, from time to time, to check out or become mindful, you know, you could go through the list. Is this factor present or not present? Is investigation present or not present? Energy, rapture, calm concentration, equanimity. And even when it's not present, being mindful that that factor is not strong at that time becomes mindfulness of the Dhamma. We're cultivating mindfulness then. And what that does is put into a context what we're doing in the practice, the purpose of practice, which is the development and cultivation of these seven limbs of freedom. Time for a few questions, if you have any. Talk was pretty long. Um, I asked once something about forgetfulness, um, and I don't remember his response exactly. But something in mind. Um, sometimes you remember, sometimes you forget. Can you talk? I don't have a full understanding of the connection of memory into the working of these different mental factors. I have a few clues. Memory has to do with the mental factor of perception. And perception is that quality of mind which recognizes the distinguishing characteristics of each object. And so everything is not just this undifferentiated blob. We actually pick out the distinguishing characteristics. That's the quality of perception. The stronger that quality of perception is, I think, the stronger the function of memory. But memory also is conditioned 
in two ways. And I asked this once of Mahasi Sayadaw, and this, he, this is what he replied. He said that memory can be conditioned by grasping or it can be conditioned by wisdom. And that as we progress along the path, the memory that's conditioned by grasping or desire falls away increasingly. Right? Those things that we remember out of, out of desire or clinging, that gets weaker. And those things that are remembered, conditioned or born out of wisdom, stay strong. That's the best I can do for now. But it's an interesting question, just to see how that, that mind function works. How do we cultivate the recognition of the neutral feeling? You can cultivate recognition of neutral feeling by recognizing those moments of experience that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. If it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, you can assume it's neutral. Because what neutral feeling means is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Okay. Mindfulness of the mind and mental states. The mind, the way we're using the word, mind means consciousness or knowing of the object. Knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, knowing of a sensation, knowing of a thought. That knowing is clear. That knowing is pure. There's there's no coloring in that. But... The consciousness or mind, the knowing of an object, does not arise alone. It arises in association with different mental factors, like greed, or hatred, or delusion, or generosity, or love, or wisdom. There are a whole bunch of different mental factors which arise in different combinations in every moment of knowing. It's those mental factors which color the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.